Manogna is the Chief Operations Officer as well as being Mentor and Research Associate at Center for Fundamental Research and Creative Education, Bangalore. Uh, Manogna has an MS from the Indian Institute of Astrophysics, Bangalore, where her thesis was Inflationary Cosmology. She is a keen student of Sanskrit literature and Indic studies and is a passionate env environmentalist and gardener. And uh, as for Meg, Meg was most recently employed as a market leader at a Fortune 40 company in China. Alumnus of a globally top-ranked Indian management school, his specialization has included a study of research methods. His professional experience includes an eight-plus year stint in China, during which he served a term on the board of 1,000-plus member Indian, Indian Association, in addition to being a full-time business development, consultant, consultative sales and marketing engagements in education and technology. Other pursuits include singing and composing music, comparing and planning Indic-centric events. Perceptions of Bharat in global, world, transnational history narratives and Indology are areas of growing interest. Good afternoon, everybody. And thank you so much for joining us during our presentation. A warm regards to the chair of our session, Dr. Man Singh. Uh, I think Sudarshan captured best uh, the distinctive features between how the West and the East approach the sacred. What constitutes sacred for them, what is corporeal, and the distinction between the two has driven this age-old clash. And to us, Pollock represents this new morphology from the American order that tries to express and further this clash. What we have shown in our paper is by studying some of the theories that he discards, theories that he uses, as well as doing a focused purvapacha where we study his pattern of desacralization through some of the inconsistencies in his work, some of the omissions, some of the distortions, his use of philology, kravya, rajya, all attempts at separating Sanskrit from its native grounding associations and cleansing it into a secularized, desacralized form. Pollock begins, though, his magnum opus, The Language of Gods in the World of Men, by acknowledging the categorizations that exist from the, uh, in the Indian studies, that is, the Vyavaharika and the Paramarthika set. But in the same tone, he's quick to associate it with Vitros, Viram, and Sertim and start focusing exclusively only on the Vyavaharika set to the extent of maintaining that there is no flow of energies between the two. So he's going to focus only on the Vyavaharika. The highlight of Pollitt's mosaic lies in the dichotomy that he creates when he says Sanskrit in pre-modern India in the VC period was exclusively used only for sacerdotal, ritualistic, liturgical purposes alone. And it is in the common era, at the, end, at the beginning of the new millennium, that the decentralized form of it sees expressions in all the other Vyavaharika Seth manifestations. Its significance becomes even more important when Pollock uses this backdrop to paint a picture of an entire culture having almost no other roles for millennia except only the liturgical. He further says that there are inscriptions testimonia, literature, philology, all which point to keeping the first Vyavaharika Seth category that he considers, which is the Kravya, into the present millennium or in the last centuries of the BC period. 
In fact, he believes only in ideology of antiquity and the cultural distinction conferred by sheer age have induced scholars to move them back appreciably before this date. And a move that requires conjecture every step of the way and the most fragile gossamer of dating. So what we will be doing in this paper is studying the data, the manner in which he has treated this data to see how he has come to these conclusions. So Maid will lead us through that part. Okay. Um, so the organization of our presentation is right on the top. The focus is over here, right? Uh, just the next slide, please. Desacralization of Sanskrit in Pollock's book, The Language of the Gods in the World of Men, is problematic right in the book's index. The index detail desacralization of, while missing out on including in the index some occurrences that appear in the book, does include in the index though references to occurrences that are not found in the book at all. This pair of errors of missing to note that which exists while indexing that which does not, we believe, mirrors rather eerily an aspect of Pollock's scholarship with regard to Sanskrit. That aspect in which we can see him leave out, or at least severely underplay, the very visible and almost omnipresent aspect of Sanskrit, the sacred, while focusing excessively on the political. Now, before getting into a deeper Puropaksha of Pollock's desacralization of Sanskrit, let us first quickly visit the Puropaksha ground already covered with regard to desacralization in Rajiv Malhotra's The Battle for Sanskrit, TBFS, henceforth. Of the six points under, quote, the obsession with secularizing Sanskrit, four of them highlighted in blue are clearly associated to desacralization. That is, one, discarding the transcendent slash sacred aspects of Sanskrit, two, sidelining oral tradition, three, accusing yajna to be linked to social hierarchy, and four, disconnecting kavya from Vedas and Shastras. Summarized elaborations of these points can be found in our paper. The Kavya theory milestone tabulation in TBFS should also be particularly handy for clarity, not only on Pollock's position vis-a-vis -vis tradition, but to also track the evolution in Pollock's own position over the last about four decades or so, right across epochs starting from the Vedas up until uh, Rupa Goswami in the 16th century. While these points are elaborated in detail in TBFS and summarized briefly in our paper, what follows is, we hope, new corpus of analysis meant as an addition to the ground that has already been covered. First, let's get started off by instantiating internal inconsistencies that we found in Pollock's work. Uh, we include two of them here. Uh, coming to the first of two, in page one of uh, The Language of Gods in the World of Men, LGWM, henceforth, Sanskrit for Pollock was, quote, long a sacred language restricted to religious practice, unquote. While he then goes on to theorize on the basis of that unsubstantiated assumption of restrictions, 72 pages of rather arduous theorization, he then seems to cast a doubt on his own assumption by including that, quote, it might be impossible to decide whether long-standing discursive restrictions rather than religious preferences explain absence of Sanskrit. While neither of these reasons are again conclu conclusively established, in view of his later position punctuated with doubt about discursive restrictions, will Pollock hence at least concede that it may therefore be proportionately, quote, impossible to decide, unquote, whether his so-called great first moment of transformation really occurred the way he proposed, 
for which restrictions of Sanskrit in times before seems to be an assumption. To what we see as the second inconsistency, in page 76, Pollock writes that, quote, to this degree it is correct to refer to Kavya as a direct descendant of Vedic mantra. Yet in page 77, he writes that one must be, quote, careful to not make Kavya a continuation of Veda, unquote. In between these two inconsistent positions, he concludes that, quote, the rhetorical, discursive, aesthetic and effective purposes of Kavya are entirely different from those of the Veda, unquote. What we see as his slate is to use the basis that proves difference between Veda and Kavya to propose and justify discontinuity. To take a simple example to make our point, a daughter and father are certainly different at least at two distinct physical entities to start with. However, that distinctness alone, and that's our argument, is not sufficient to establish discontinuity between the daughter and father, or in this case, Kavya and Veda. From basic internal inconsistencies, let us now look at distortions, at least five of them that we found. First two of them being what we call category level, translation-based distortions. To come to the first of those two, Shravya and Drishya. Now, Shravya and Drishya as ways to categorize Kavya, and these are seen, these are translated as audible and visible, respectively, by uh, insider Krishnamacharya in his 1937 book, History of Sanskrit Literature. Now, these translations of Shravya as audible and Drishya as visible should be rather easy to appreciate and accept, even if one is not an expert in Sanskrit. In writing about this binary, Pollock says, consider first the old binary of Sanskrit literary theory, dating from the 7th century at the latest and never questioned in the tradition, that represents Kavya as one of only two types, something seen, Drishya, that is drama, or something heard, Shravya, that is recitative. First, he makes himself appear as though he is doing a Purupaksha here, yet he does not name the specific source. Then, even as he includes something heard and something seen, which one could argue are fairly synonymous with Krishnamacharya's audible and visible, he sneaks into parenthesis though, drama for Drishya and recitative for Shravya. Including the narrower translation of drama for Drishya facilitates Pollock to make the point that there is no category for writing. And yet, by not including the source, he builds for himself a back door should this be challenged later, even as the narrower translation gets his academic sanction. If Drishya is the broader visible rather than the narrower drama, Pollock would not be able to make the point that there is no category for writing, a conclusion that would lend rather critical weight to his uh, theory of the beginning of Kavya being linked to the import of writing into India. This tendency to claim to be doing a Purva Paksha but not providing the specific source, which hence makes verification difficult, and yet drawing conclusions based on limited definitions, some distortive, is what we have termed as the Purva Paksha trap. We can see another example of the Purva Paksha trap in action in another category level translation related distortion, that of Mahakavya. Again, referring to credible tradition without being specific, Pollock's sanctions by inclusion courtly epics as a translation for Mahakavya. The notion of courtly, needless to say, helps link and in some sense limit 
Mahakavya to the notion of power. Quote though does not feature in the English definition of Mahakavya as deduced by insider Krishnamacharya as evident in his surmise based on Dandin's Kavya Darsha and Vishwanatha's Sahitya Darpana. Krishnamacharya about Mahakavya writes, Shortly stated, a Mahakavya is a writing of considerable length, varying description and elaborate conclusion, embracing a narrative, theological or historical, and is divided into sargas or cantos for convenience of narration. Nowhere above in this uh, deduction by Krishnamacharya does one find the notion of courtly being a single defining attribute of uh, Mahakavya. Moving on now to the third distortion about writing in India before common era. We see in the Drishya and Drama distortion, the opening seized by Pollock to make the point that, quote, there is no category for writing, unquote. This is important to Pollock as he believes writing was imported into India in the mid-3rd century BC and this for him is key to the beginning of Kavya itself and in some sense to the history of Sanskrit. While Pollock quotes Richard Salomon in his book, he willfully or otherwise refuses to point out to evidence alluded by the same Salomon in his 1998 book. Evidence, for example, such as occurrence of Lippi in Ashtadhyayi of Panini, whom Pollock himself dates to 4th century BCE, therefore posing a challenge to Pollock's dating of beginning of Brahmi writing in South Asia slash India to mid 3rd century BCE. More evidence is found in works of Subhash Kak's uh, 1994 paper, revisited and embellished, embellished by him in his 2015 edition of the book, in which one finds references to Brahmi pottery attested to at least 9th century BCE. Moving on now, uh, for Pollock, nothing suggests a date of Indic writing before mid-3rd century BC. Nothing suggests that any remotely comparable Sanskrit texts existed prior to this time and rather fantastically that nothing suggests any Sanskrit texts have since been lost. Notwithstanding the fact that he fails to include already existing evidence that may challenge his position, on uh, Brahmi writing at least, his nothing suggests seems to suggest that he knows all that was destroyed, natural or by the multiple invasions that uh, one has seen in the history of Bharat, seems to suggest that he has already read and analyzed the over 30 million or so manuscripts uh, as per an estimate which he himself includes and seems to suggest that he knows all that is going on uh, in archaeology today and all that is going to be attested in the future. Now, uh, to the last of the five distortions, as we saw earlier, Pollock urges his reader to be, quote, careful to not make Kavya a continuation of Veda, unquote. The knowledge of one of the links between Veda and Kavya, which he is willing to acknowledge, the link that ancient seers of the Veda are often referred to as Kavi, was though, according to Pollock, a link that was never, quote, adopted or even registered by people in pre-modern South Asia, unquote. In other words, according to him, pre-modern Indians, who are a subset of pre-modern South Asians, if not the set itself, were according to Pollock, unaware that ancient seers of the Veda were often referred to as Kavi. Now, unless Pollock will also stick his neck out to 
make in our humble opinion the rather laughable point that pre-modern indian south asians had never ever adopted shrimad bhagavad gita or even registered its existence how can his point that pre-modern south asians were unaware that ancient seers of the veda were often referred to as kavi be tenable given the verse this verse from shrimad bhagavad gita chapter 10 verse 37 ऋषीनाम वासुदेव अस्मि पांडवानाम धनंजय मुनीनाम अहम व्यास कवीनाम उषाना कवि मूविंग ऑन नाउ एंड फ्रॉम डिस्टॉशंस टू सप्लीमेंटिंग द बॉडी ऑफ एविडेंस दैट इज फाउंड इन द बैटल फॉर संस्कृत वाइल स्टेइंग ऑन दिस पॉइंट ऑफ द लिंकेज बिटवीन काव्य एंड वेद नाउ इन द बैटल फॉर संस्कृत वन फाइंड्स एटलीस्ट ट्वेल्व डिफरेंट पॉइंट्स पॉइंट्स दट रेंज फ्रॉम वर्स रेफरेंसेज इन अथर्वेद एंड नाट्यशास्त्र to book/papers that allude to the link between kavya and veda uh, to these 12 points that are already there in the battle for sanskrit we add 69 data points 10 occurrences of kavi in vedas 8 in rigveda and 2 in samaveda and 59 occurrences in natya shastra we believe these could be further mined for more specific insights in this regard by future work while we'll not go through each one of them over here Here is just one example of the 69 Rigveda Mandala 5 Sukta 39 which includes Kavyam Vacha that has been translated as poetic words and this should not be insufficient to establish the link Now on this topic of Veda and Kavya a rather categorical omission and no we've not misspelled <laughs> categorical in the slide but deliberately spelt it that way in order to convey the fact that the whole category has been willfully otherwise omitted the category being upavedas now according to late kanchi acharya pujya mahaperiwal shri chandrashekar saraswati swamigal quote ayurveda arthashastra dhanurveda and gandharva veda are called upavedas subsidiary vedas unquote and that quote the connection with the prime scriptures is thus obvious unquote in this chart an a2 size chart titled chaturdasha vidyasthana the sacred books gandharva veda which is contained in the category upavedas includes key kavya texts like kavya darsha of dandin kavya lankara of bhamaha kavya mimamsa of rajashekara and also pollux of cited shringara prakasha of bhoja choosing to not see continuity between vedas and kavya and to not see or at least underplay the sacred would clearly be discarding the view of indigenous tradition for further study of patterns in pollux desacralization of sanskrit i will now call on manogna so with this characteristically flawed treatment you know that gives that he gives to most of his data almost making it a signature pollux goes on to give certain theories about the way sanskrit spread in the new millennium and the key to that lies in the way he uses philology pollock believes that in his cosmopolitan order which we will elaborate upon uh, soon philology lays the basis for par even as philological traditions encouraged the uh, spread as well as growth of sanskrit literature outside the realms which were liturgical primarily and sacerdotal this critical philology of pollock's brand enables him to read relationships between polity kinship and prashasti 
thereby creating alternate models of culture and power in South Asia. And he believes Sanskrit as a language carries the traces and imprints of this wherever, he, wherever it spreads. So he then remains faithful to his typical modus operandi of asking the biggest of questions, but then using his data sets formed out of like really small subsets. So what he does, he starts off by thinking of uh, the culture, then narrows it down further to literature, and from literature he's now come down to Kravya. And he tries to analyze culture-power relations by studying the relationship between Kravya and Rajya. By separating Kravya from any connection to the sacred, and then without studying Rajya in terms of any of the native structures, what Pollock wants to do is study themes of domination, exploitation, and violence that arise from power. Pollock maintains that the, the relationship he has defined between Kravya and Rajya has interpretative challenges from within the tradition. So what he does is, instead of analyzing it further from the canons, he goes around considering several modern Western theories, actively dismissing them, so that he sets the basis for the cosmopolitan construct as that which would explain the whole spread. In fact, with this new model, he says Sanskrit became territorially expansive, it became politically universalistic, and ethnically non-particularized. So if you study these terms, these are all terms which place Sanskrit in a decentralized, globalized platform from which one can arrive at radical different um, you know, concepts. Crucial to Pollock's thesis in the cosmopolitan order is the role played by writing. Pollock believes that the introduction of the manuscript culture and the element of writing came to India during the second to third century BC from the outsiders, of course, and maintaining that the very act of being able to speak Sanskrit. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So the very act of being able to speak and more than that, write Sanskrit, to codify it in written form, was thanks to uh, Rudradaman, the Shakya prince's first inscription. And this was a cultural and political act, a deliberate choice on his as well as other poets' parts to break the old hierarchy. In further trying to justify his ictus on writing as being the main catalyst to the non-sacral nature of Sanskrit, Pollock then traces in the ideas of uh, Nicholas Luhmann to see how cultural and ideational change is shared by technology. For instance, in modern days, it is printing. So he's equating the act of writing, which was apparently brought into India by outsiders, as that which changed the socio-political conditions during the last uh, centuries of the BC period, and ensured the and it began with the cosmopolitan model. The next theory that he dismisses actively is that of linguism. Pollock considers uh, ideas from Pollock considers ideas from Dante, Franz uh, Rosenzweig, Antonio Gramsci, and Johann Herder, including Herder's famous statement of how the best culture of a people cannot be expressed in a foreign language, and with language is created the heart of a people. So here what Pollock does, he even dismisses Western theories which can aid to provide a picture that enables, to, that enables to localize Sanskrit. So what he does, he dismisses Herder's statement, he also dismisses uh, Clifford uh, Reed's analysis as language being primordial to a culture, 
in the order of being something that is given, right? In fact, Yeats had noted that this uh, particularly intense feeling around language was very strong in India. So Pollock believes even this theory of linguism doesn't apply. Instead, he favors Max Weber's constructivist account and believes that the idea of the primal nature of a language is something that is actually created by social elites who used this belief to safeguard and maintain the exclusivity of the community. And this is what percolates through the society through cultural forms. This is indeed a rather convenient way of saying how the Brahmin and the Vedic order created the idea of the primordial nature of Sanskrit. And this is something that disseminated throughout the society. He also goes on to maintaining rather incredulously of treating multilingualism in India, because we're a, land, we're a country of so many different tongues, he uses multilingualism, in fact, to maintain that linguism as a theory itself cannot be applied to India. The import of it leading to a point where the claim for Sanskrit, right, being native and primal to our nature, is questioned and eventually rejected. The next theory that he dismisses is uh, the two functionist arguments. One is the Sanskritization. So what he does is, Pollock brings in a huge uh, question and doubts if Sanskrit at all was used for any Vyavaharika purposes. In fact, he says that the, most, the weakest of all argument is that which explains the role of Sanskrit throughout the, um, throughout the North-South Asian uh, subcontinent for any everyday day-to-day -day purposes. But at the same time, he also wonders how it spread throughout. Right? So he creates a sort of a bizarre picture where the entire people during the first BC period have no other roles except ritualistic and liturgical ones. At the same time, in the new millennium, you have it being spread. And he's going to resolve this enigma by the cosmopolis construct that he gives us. He further goes on to harping back, in some sense, to his pet lens, which is that of the culture power, rela uh, power relations. Paula charges that Sanskrit as a language doesn't have a tradition where it is ever considered or studied how it produces content, right? In fact, he says that, uh, and hence he goes on to extend, there is no explanatory model even for the cosmopolitan construct. He says the concept of Sanskritization ignores the most part of critical aspects of the transculturation process and has become a hindrance rather than any help to any critical inquiry in the domain. The next set of theories he dismisses are that of legitimation. Pollock maintains that it is patently false, at least for South Asia, that before the coming of colonial modernity, there existed a single, unified, unblurred vision of either power or culture. So there is no concept of any dharma in any of its forms that he considers that could be a unifying force. Instead, he repeats ad nauseum that kavya and writing were tools of desacralizing and unfettering Sanskrit from the oppression of the Vedic domination. He dismisses even the applicability of uh, you know, legitimation theories and sums up a case where he says the notion of legitimation, Sanskritization, ethnicity, linguism, cultural naturalism are all obstacles from modern Western theory that that is placed in understanding pre-modern India. He also considers two other uh, theories that he categorically dismisses in his journey of building a highly decentralized, globalized Sanskrit. And that is 
that of civilizationism. In fact, Pollock says the two analytical frameworks that are even more obstructive are the one that frames India as the civilization it always was and the one that frames it as the nation it could never be. So in considering the civilization aspect of it, Pollock believes that nationalism as well as uh, civilizationism as categories are not applicable to Sanskrit, which always saw itself as existing everywhere in uh, general and nowhere in particular. He says to an outsider looking in the field of South Asian studies, the history of civilization problem falls into two major phases. One is that of the colonial European and the other of the Indian chauvinist. So on the European side, Indianization of Asia is seen as an antecedent to its own contemporary imperial project. And on the Indian side, it is taken as a consoling reminder of India's own triumphant colonial past in the face of a humiliating colonized present. I think the line that he uses for the Indian one is actually more uh, bothersome to me, where he says India had a colonial past and then it became colonized. So he's going to take our own theories and tell us we were the colonizer of Southeast Asia. You know, Sanskrit is found in Indonesia, Java, everywhere. And the introduction of the British colonialism is basically a reminder of our glorious colonial past. Then he goes on to quote, in fact, to substantiate his arguments, French writers who said, who always interpreted pre-modern colonization by Indians as a forerunner of their own well-known uh, civilizationist missions. Clearly what Pollock does is want to build a case to show that India itself had a colonizing past, not just being colonized. He further, he further considers words of uh, Walters and uh, maintains that, for example, in uh, the Cambodian uh, language, when, where Sanskrit has spread, most of the local forms of the language have apparently been effaced in favor of the trans-regional Sanskrit. So that is an indication that Sanskrit, wherever it went, wiped out the native local forms and replaced it with its um, you know, well-built structure with grammar and philology, all that were tools that were created to oppress. In fact, the next sentence is more bothersome. He says, the foreign does not become such until civilizationist thinking makes it so. Prior to that, the foreign is simply a cultural element circulating in the vast world its origins undecidable and very likely irrelevant to the people and uh, to the people who proceeded to make use of it. What does this sound like? This sounds more like a line sort of justifying colonization and imperialism. You know, when you say you can't claim what is foreign and what is native, when you cannot establish that distinction, it becomes, um, you know, the next step that you can take into justifying even imperialism. Further dismissing indigenism, Pollock demonstrates that all culture is really a transculture, and indigenism is to the history of culture what creationism is to the history of science. Right? So Pollock uh, then considers a considerable body of work that has been taken in this uh, form and shows, and, and in fact asks this question, what possible conception of the world as a whole can be said to characterize Indian civilization? which has witnessed struggles over conceptions of the world of the most incommensurable and irreconcilable sort for three millennia. So there is no dharma anywhere. So we, have, we are not a people who have had a unifying paradigm which has seen manifestations in all its innumerable forms, has no unifying force. Indeed, 
a stable singularity called the Indian culture, so often conjured up by Southeast Asian indigenous, never existed. What did exist was only a range of cultural and political codes and acts, many recently developed and undoubtedly generated out of various local practices. Only gradually, apparently, did all these royalists and come together, and from the idea of considering it as a process, culture or civilization nothing becomes nothing but a concept that has been legitimized. Right? And then he goes on to maintain that present-day understandings of civilization may be based on indigenous conceptions that are unhistorical and reductive. Right? So what he wants is for us to go back to the drawing board, come up, take all his theories and come up with uh, no, more patterns and see how this decentralized language, what he um, you know, shows through his patterns. So how did it become this? How did it become a trans-regional language with no native associations, completely disconnected from any of its Vedic roots or any of it that you know, can create structures where a set of people can claim to uh, you know, defend it. So in continuing with tradition from his European predecessors, Pollock rather imperiously asks, are there any decision makers, as they refer to themselves, at universities and foundations, who would not agree that in the cognitive sweepstakes of human history, Western knowledge has won and South Asian knowledge has lost, that the rest of the world has ineluctably become the West, not the South, that accordingly, South Asian knowledge that the South Asians themselves have produced can no longer be held to have any significant consequences for the future of a human species. So with such clear assertion you know, of the victory of the Western knowledge systems, I think it's only in vain that one can search for a template that would actively respect a, you know, a, a system's internal parameters. A careful examination of Pollitt's work also lays bare his sometimes very explicit, sometimes implicit uh, intentions to globalize the Sanskrit very clearly. He, his remarks over here, assuming these anomalies as future potentialities by de-civilizing, denationalizing the Indian past, where they were once lived realities, is something that might be achieved by a serious historical account of Sanskrit in the world. One seeking not a return to roots, but a coming to terms with our roots. Basically an unsentimental, non-defensive history that is one not merely pointlessly erudite. This is the version which he very generously gives us. So what we have aimed to show through this paper is not only firstly study his data, he has a very signature treatment of data, whether it is the inconsistencies, omissions, the sleights of hand that he plays into. So our first part has been in seeing how this factors in with decentralization and also to see how he actively discards models and theories even from Western ideas so that he can go around laying a construct for, the, for his cosmopolis theory that would give us the kind of desecularized Sanskrit that he very generously gives us. Thank you. To help me, you can do two things. You can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Uh, secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, how do we donate? How can we help you? Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button. You can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.